You're listening to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, a podcast about life through the lens of music. Welcome to another episode of Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board. My name is Jay Mack, host of the program in my bunker in St. Louis. Hey, and this is uh, Sam Wade, other other host of the program, coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. We've got an incredible show. Can't wait to get to it. We've got a special guest who Sam's going to introduce here in a minute. But before we do that, I would just like to tell our listeners the show is available, a new episode every Wednesday on all pretty much all major streaming services. Just Google it. As well as on Saturday, a special, uh, like a little blurb called a B-side pops up, which we had a good B-side this week. You never, B-side is kind of like the Russian roulette of podcast topics. You never know what's going to pop up. It's fun. It's short. You don't have to, to, to spend 45 minutes doing it. It usually is three to five minutes. In and out. Laugh your ass off. Sam, who we got this week? J-Mac, I'm excited to introduce our guest this week, David M. Treadway. He's a writer, actor, and director with over 15 years' experience in the film industry. We're so glad to have him on the show to talk about uh, film music. Why don't you say what's up, David? Hey, guys. It is my honor and pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Just imagine a wall of deafening applause like Johnny Carson or Letterman or something. I can hear it now. What, you guys don't hear the clapping? (laughs) (laughs) It's just you, Sam. No, it's just me. It's just me. You know, there's been talk very briefly of getting a soundboard, but me and Sam feel that would kind of detract from the show with all the boing and all that stuff going on. (laughs) Maybe just for one episode, like a special episode, right? Yeah, maybe so. It's so good to see you, David, and I'm so glad that it finally worked out for you to come on the show. We've been trying to make this happen for a while. It's been a little bit, yeah, man, and I'm glad to be here. I'm excited about uh, tonight's Tonight's topic, it's dear, near and dear to my heart because I love filmmaking so much, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with you guys about it. Well, I got to say before we get going, I love your mustache. Now, I said this before we started recording, but you've got that Al Swearingen, like Sheriff Bullock thing going on. Absolutely. Uh, you you want to tell us why you've got that? Yeah, so the uh, Colonel Sanders meets Sons of Anarchy look, that's <laughs> actually for a, a short film that uh, I'm going to be acting in next month. Um, a co-writer on it, and uh, we're bringing a couple guys in from out of town to do the directing and the DP work. Uh, me and another buddy of mine, Bart Elfrink. By the way, if you're not familiar with Bart's work, you can find him on Vimeo, uh, Bart Elfrink. He's a cinematographer, actor, writer. Guy's brilliant. Um, and uh, anyway, yeah, so he and I co-wrote the script for the short. It's a, it's a comedy western. So All right, that sounds I, I good. like this. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like both genres. Is it? I mean, like, what was that one? The Ridiculous Six that was on Netflix not too long ago. Adam Sandler movie. Yes, that was. I didn't actually see that. So <laughs> that's like a slapstick movie. Is your is yeah. your uh, comedy western? Is it slapstick or is it more of like a deadpan kind of a western comedy? It's going to kind of be a. It's going to be a combination. So think of uh, think of kind of a Mel Brooks bent to it yeah uh, yeah yeah blazing okay. saddles yep exactly right that sounds good man what's it called uh the working title is the canon uh but we've oh, gone okay. through we've gone through uh <laughs> we've gone through some titles we'll see if that sticks you know how it is. <laughs> yeah it's always hard to come up with the title while you're creating it because you know e- you know until you got all the pieces there and it's assembled sometimes it's hard to know exactly what it is that you're making 
But that's uh, well, that's. It's funny uh, for me is that a lot of times the title is the first thing I get for a piece, and oh, then wow. when I write it, I find that the that the real title is actually somewhere in the piece, and so then like, uh, but it gives you the starting point for it. it's like an anchor point. That's cool. That's a that's a cool way to think about it. it do you have like several projects in in the works right now, or is this like your 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 main thing that you're working towards? So yeah, actually, I'm in post production on a project that was shot <laughs> shot pre-pandemic but we lost our vfx guy uh during like we were at the last you know we're at the last yard uh to get that finished we lost our vfx guy and then uh we and as most of these projects are they're passion projects so there was no money so after we lost him was like well we'll do it and then uh that didn't work out because uh, the pandemic hit and then it was ever like, well, no, now, now we actually need to make money. And so yeah. <laughs> it was just like one thing off on another. So my goal is to get that project finished by the end of this year. And I just went ahead and decided to do the VFX on it myself. Okay. So we'll, uh, we'll go that route with it, but, uh, that's more of a drama and, uh, it's uh, reflective of our time. I think a little bit, it's about a guy who loses his job and he's attempting to find uh, a new one. And, uh, the, the, uh, difficulties of the bills piling up of doing everything you possibly can to try and make it back into the workforce and nobody will nobody seems to want to hire you that sounds relevant for our time uplifting (laughs) (laughs) well how do you and sam know each other david so uh samuel joseph wade and myself (laughs) uh, he goes and uses my whole name Uh, absolutely (laughs) that's right (laughs) it sounds so official I know it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Sam and I's relationship actually goes back now. Is it twenty six years, twenty five years? It's, it's been it's, a while, man. We've seen some. We've seen some. We're like our old, old uh, war buddies at this time. I think actually, we really are. Yeah, man. We've seen we've seen a lot over the years. Worked on a lot of projects together, and and uh, on- we have. Yeah, Sam and I uh, kind of. I think what was the. Um, it was really what set the tone for our relationship was that we met uh, in music, interestingly enough. That's right. Uh, we were both going to the same church at the time, and uh, we started playing music there. And then we started hanging out together, and we started doing ev- almost anything creative. We ended up finding ourselves both involved in. And we found also that our experiences growing up were really similar. So we sort of coined <laughs> this phrase, we grew up in different houses together. because it was our paths are so parallel in a lot of ways. Um, and interestingly, if you want to talk about like, you know, intersections in life, um, have continued to be really parallel in a lot of ways. That's true, man. Well, you know, great minds think alike. And I actually, this is a, this is a good episode because like, you know, I think I've known you almost as long as I've known J Mac. So this is like a, a meeting of the minds tonight of creatives that have just really been plugging away for years, making things along the way. I'm so excited right. to talk yeah. about a film scoring tonight, too, because I think that you're a great guest to come on and actually kind of explore this. Wouldn't you agree, J-Mac? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm interested in how you got into movies to begin with, because that's in St. Louis. That's not a it's not a uh, I, I guess a few people have left and like Jenna Fisher. And I guess J, I think James Gunn is from St. Louis. But yeah, how did you what yeah. made you want to get into uh, to movie making? So that's a fantastic question. My uh, my dad is just an absolute uh, TV and film nut. And it's not so much that he knows about all the technical aspects of it. He just loves TV and film. 
That's and cool. uh, so from the time I was a little kid, and what was funny was, while most of my friends, you know, in the 80s were watching Back to the Future and Gremlins and things like that, uh, <laughs> I was watching Laurence Olivier and Spencer Tracy. And so almost all these movies from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, and then musicals, like movie musicals, everything from Singing in the Rain, which is my all-time favorite movie, to uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, uh, West Side Story, you name it. That doesn't it, age well. Stuff. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers does not age well. <laughs> it does not. It does not age well. It does no, no. not. It's definitely um, not not a not a Me Too film. Sorry, I had to throw that it in. It is not a Me Too <laughs> film. No, reflective of its era, but not a Me Too film. That is true. But so um, yeah, just growing up, constantly watching. I mean, some in some cases, five nights a week. You know, my dad. My dad loved to do this thing where after dinner he would go uh, just walk out the door. We would think he was going to go out and like you know hose down the yard or something like that. He's gone for a half an hour and he comes back and he's got a movie from uh, at the time the, where the grocery stores used to rent VHS tapes. Oh yeah. So oh yeah. I remember would, that. Right. Yeah. So he'd bring the movie back and, uh, and you'd be like, I don't know where this came from. It just like fell into my car or something and <laughs> make up some lame story. Cause he knew my mom didn't want him spending the money. And so that's awesome. <laughs> and so, Anyway, and then we'd watch, you know, we'd watch any number of films uh, from the ones I've just mentioned to, to, and then my dad and I ended up, and this is where my, my love for Ennio Morricone comes in, is uh, my dad was a Western guy, always has been a Western guy, still is a Western guy. So I started getting exposed to things like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly for a few dollars oh, yeah. more, fist, Fistful of Dollars, all those films. I got exposed to those fairly young. And, uh, and so my dad and I had this real bond over films. And that's how my love for that grew that's cool. uh, was that. And then what ended up happening in St. Louis for me was I just <laughs> did a dumb thing that actually ended up leading to something really productive. And that was um, when I was about 21, I decided I want to be in video production. So I went out and at the time spent a ton of money and I bought a uh, three CCD camera with a uh, um, tape but was still shooting on mini dv at that time all right and uh and a, and a macbook and i was like i'm gonna become a filmmaker um put myself in debt and then but started making little movies and uh, that's how i got started in st louis and then you know how it is man you just start plugging away you talk to people you make relationships and from there uh you know fast forward 10 15 years and i was the director of digital production at one of the largest um, content studios in St. Louis for a couple of years. And so it was, um, yeah, you just keep working at it. I love your your throwback to old movies because my parents would go out and rent from the local grocery store. There was yeah. like a little, and I think Sam used to work there, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I did work at a, at a video store for a while, yeah. And, we, and they would pick up Humphrey Bogart movies. And I think mm -hmm. I saw The Princess Bride for the first time on VHS. Great movie. Yes. Like old westerns, I remember my dad, my mom was out of town. We and he rented uh, the Magnificent Seven. Great movie, amazing film. I dig the old movie thing. I could see why that would have inspired you. Yeah, definitely. And for me too, I think it was the other part of it was like I got the first thing I was ever exposed to in filmmaking was classic Hollywood or what they call classic Hollywood. So before I ever got into, you know, the nouveau Hollywood stuff from the like the late sixties and early seventies. Um, and then started seeing more modern stuff. I had this interesting vocabulary in film that a lot of people my age didn't have. And so it was a, it was a, I think it was actually, I really credit my father for like how my taste in films developed because I was seeing everything that had become 
that all the good things that had come out of the studio system at that time, um, directors who were, you know, now the director's like, oh, guess what? Uh, Steven Spielberg's got a film coming out this year. But, you know, you might you might look at a, at a director like John Houston and make like six films in a year because it was just every time you finished principal photography on something like they, he was handed another script and he went and shot another movie. Yeah. So it's stuff like that. Like I really am grateful for like that early film education I got because it was an amazing way to begin to understand the language and the power really of storytelling through filmmaking. Dave, I, you know, you, you, you bring up a good point by um, how much, uh, you know, really at that time period in the 60s and 70s, there was so much content being generated. Um, I don't think people realize, you know, it's kind of the same way now for for streaming, but this was happening for film. It was happening in the music industry, too. I mean, we've we've talked quite a bit about like some of the 60s bands like the Beatles and the Stones making sometimes, you know, three to four records a year. And it was the same way in in in, in Hollywood. Um, but what I'm really curious is like with that type of level of that many films being made, um, it had to be a crazy time for film composers, you know, writing a score at that time. You mentioned, uh, Ennio Morricone, you know, is famous for working with that, uh, uh, Italian film director. What was his name? Uh, Sergio Leone. Was that common for, for, a, for a director to work with the same composer? Well, it's always been with just like anything in, in the creative industries, um, you find somebody that you really click with, right? And then you want to go back every time you finish a project, you sort of think of them. It's one of the things, even no matter whether you're in a large ind- uh, a large market for creative content or a small one, you find that sort of the last person that you worked with is the first name that's on your mind for the next project that uh. you do, right? If you look at the way uh, like a director and composer, for instance, uh, collaborate, vocabulary is really important. Because the director has to be able to communicate their ideas to the composer in a way that the the composer can say, okay, I understand what he's going for, what she's going for, right? And like a like a like like kind of like a shorthand, right? Is that what you're? Yeah, getting exactly. At? Right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Because let, let's face it, you know, if you've got if your if your best boy says to a grit, look, I need a pancake and a hi hat and a scissor clamp, then like you have to know what those things are in order to be able to to actually like go, oh yeah, I know what I need to do now. I'm not sure well, I know what you just said. What does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> um. Yes, right. No. So yeah, a type of a type of apple box and a type of um of a tripod mount. But the in any in any collaboration, you're going to have to have what you I think you said it perfectly, a shorthand. Yeah. So even just something as simple as like what is a score? That a lot of people are like, "Why well, yeah, a score is music in a movie, right?" Uh, or a television show, which is essentially true. Um, but it, there is even more of a definition to it than that. It's it's typically the music written specifically for a particular scene, a particular character. Ah, um, okay. Usually it's played by a symphony or an orchestra. Usually it's instrumental. Um, and uh, and so that's what a score is. Um, and we can get later if we want. We can get into things like diegetic versus non-diegetic music. But the idea is that you have to start with understanding what you're talking about. So the score, it's just the music written for the film to enhance uh, or to deepen an audience's understanding or response of the emotion in the scene, of a character's point of view, uh, how it's being written to emphasize an idea. That's the score. And again, it's usually uh, instrumental and typically played by an orchestra or a symphony. uh, and, And yeah, so that's a score. Well, I can see why directors and composers would want to work together because 
just like any relationship, you get used to the person like understanding what you want. Like, I mean, obviously some of the big ones are like John Williams with Spielberg and then with uh, Lucas. You've got uh, Alan Silvestri who works with what's, what's the director's name from back to the future. Robert Zemeckis. (laughs) We all went blank. How do do we forget Robert Zemeckis? (laughs) Some of my favorite films of all time were directed by Robert Zemeckis back to the future. (laughs) <laughs> and then Peter Jackson and Howard Shore. Ah, mm-hmm. that's a good that's one. Right. That's actually one of the things that's most fascinating to me about watching a film and listening to how the music interacts with the action. Because if 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 the cues are off, it throw it can throw the entire sequence off. So that's you right. re- yeah. you really have to be have a really good communication, a really good relationship with your composer and or director, depending on what side of the equation you are, to really make it work um what would be the most difficult scene for you to talk to a uh, to a composer about scoring is there is are there maybe maybe a better way would be like what would be your favorite scene to have scored probably some of the most difficult types of scenes to score will be scenes where there is no dialogue to be honest with you um because what the score is having to do at that point is it's having to say what the characters are thinking or i shouldn't say it's having to say but it's having to cue the audience into what the characters are thinking and feeling um, without the, I mean, without the characters obviously saying it. And that would be, that's really difficult because it's, it's the level of nuance in a scene like that, that makes it challenging. Um, You can't hit people over the head with, with, you know, something in order to try and communicate because typically in scenes where there are no dialogue, it's either a highly emotional scene or a highly like tense scene, right? And so you have to find a way to be able to put the nuance into that kind of a scene using the music as opposed to just, you know, smashing people over the over the head with it. I think an interesting example of something that typically is done effectively, but like for me is a little bit, I wince at it a little bit, is a lot of Christopher Nolan's films. The scores in those films and the sound in general um, is so intense and it's kind of dominating. But I think that's the point for him. Yeah, the idea is. is that it's you can't avoid it. It's almost like it's hitting you. You know. Yeah, it's true. It's especially with his last film, Tenet. Like when I saw, so yeah. I, I saw Tenet, and this is a lot of mixed, you know, uh, reviews on this. In fact, we've had conversations where you know I I think we have different ways of of thinking about that film, but it's. You know, a lot of people get frustrated with the dialogue in his films and with how loud the score is. Um, I will admit, when I saw it, I, the first time I saw it was actually on an airplane, which is not ever a good way to see a movie. Um, it just, you know, something to pass the time. And But then I went and saw it. It was still in theaters. I went and saw it in the IMAX. And it was a totally different experience where they had um, the speakers that could actually create the sounds that, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ludwig Gorosin, I think is how you say it, was the uh, was the composer for that film. Um, but mm-hmm. it really was this like a lot of tension and crazy sounds being built like that. And and that's a lot of what happens, you know, when you're talking about like picking sounds that uh, match the mood of the scene. You know what? You know what, what? What I'm really curious about, too, is I think like a lot of people, when they think about film music, they probably just assume that the movie's made and then they call in the composer and then the composer sits down and starts writing music. Um, to what's already been made, but that doesn't seem like that's the case. Like, it seems like some of these conversations would start to happen early on. Would you agree with that? 
so it has a lot to do with how the particular composer uh, and director work together, to be honest. I mean, if you look at the way that Sergio Leone, uh, since we've already mentioned Ennio Marconi, if you look at the way he worked, he didn't write a word uh, on the page until he had given Ennio Marconi ideas, suggestions, feelings about the characters that he wanted to create and the moods and the ideas in the story. So what, what they would actually do, which is really interesting, I've never heard of another uh, duo doing this, but he would give Ennio Morricone these ideas, these suggestions. Then Ennio Morricone would go off, write three, four, sometimes five different themes for each character that was going to be in the film, bring them back to Sergio Leone, and then he would cherry pick the parts of the themes that he liked for his characters, put them together, give them back to Morricone, he would then write full pieces, full cues. Um, and then once uh, all of that was in place, essentially the film had been scored, he would then write the script. And while they were shooting, he would play those pieces on set, which by wow. the way, in that when those films were being shot, that forced them to have to dub all the dialogue, by the way. So wow. they had to go back into the studio and re-record all the dialogue after the fact. But um, he felt, Sergio Leone felt that there was no way for the, for the actor to truly get into the character unless they had the tone and the emotion of the character present while they were performing. That's pretty cool. And so that was, that's a really unusual way to work, but that's how they do it. In fact, Ennio Morricone said that there was never a, a, a script of uh, Sergio Leone's that he worked on where the script was finished before the score was. The films were actually cut to the score after they were shot. That doesn't seem like that happens all the time, right? Oh, no. No, no, no. That's very unusual. Yeah. Well, it's funny that, that we're talking about the, 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 the Leone films because I just recently rewatched The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And Great movie. Th there are long portions of no words. Mm-hmm. And Marconi, exactly right. you, you cannot separate his music from that film. You hear the music, you instantly pull up Clint Eastwood in his, in his duster with with uh you know being tracked down through the desert or whatever it's it's really good and that's and and the thing about the way he did he did he used weird noises and weird instruments in his score which he made so it did. extremely like the yodel or whatever that wolf howl is and the good the bad yeah. the ugly it's very unique and i can't think of another composer off the top of my head that has has such a strange and just un like un like it's like almost an otherworldly sound that he gets it's like very epic J-Mac, you know that uh, that music that he wrote for The Good, Bad, and Ugly is so epic. I'm pretty sure that Metallica has opened their shows with that music for years now. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. It is so cool. so cool. I mean, what a way to think about going to a metal show by hearing like music from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. That's inspired score on that, too. It absolutely is. I think of the scene at the end of the movie where there are, there's the three the three people and they're all in the, in the circle in the showdown. I guess it's the showdown scene and that it's a long scene. And I remember the first time I watched, it, I was like, why is nothing happening? But then I, I, re <laughs> I realized that was, that was Leone's style. And it gave, it really gave you a, a real chance to really sink in just the, the lines on the characters faces. You could, you could almost hear yeah. the leather creaking and, and the wind blowing and see the sweat rolling off their, their dirty faces and the music is it it's inexorably tied to that it's it's so it's so a part of that without a doubt without a doubt yeah 
You know, um, when I'm thinking about like classic film composers pairing up with directors, one of the ones that I think of is Alfred Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann. I'm pretty sure mm -hmm. that he scored almost every single Hitchcock film, at least from the birds on, um, and has been such an influential uh, composer, you know, since then as well. Um, I know that even Scorsese, um, I want to say he was in like a semi-retirement when he pulled him out um, to do Taxi Driver, which I think ended up being like one of his last films that he scored. Um, but like he was definitely another one of those composers that had the ability um, to create and, and craft what you mentioned earlier, themes, which are like, you know, little uh, uh, recognizable hooks, like like musical hooks that are inspired by a character or action on screen mm -hmm. that get used a lot in the score. Like to go back to star Wars and, and John Williams, I'm thinking of like the music that plays that's like Luke's theme when he's looking at the two suns setting on Tatooine, like that sweet oh, binary music. sunset is the name of that piece. That's right. There you go. But aren't they also called motifs? Yeah. I think These that'd be a motifs. fair term for it too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Well, and speaking of motifs, if you go back to The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, it's interesting because it, again, shows Morricone's genius. But um, each of the characters, so Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and Eli Wallach uh, are the three principal characters in that film. Uh, and so that two-note motif that opens the whole, the whole movie um, that we're all so familiar with what he did in as a way to distinguish each of the each of those three characters in the film is that each of those three characters he used that as their motif but he used different instruments nice for it. So oh that's like, cool for Clint Eastwood's character it was a flute and for Lee Van Cleef's character it was an ocarina and then for uh, Eli Wallach's character, it was actually a choir. And so it was so cool because even though it was the same two notes, each of them had, and it was kind of tied to their characters' names and or personalities. So uh, once again, you just look at the way it's like, not only is that the opening motif for the film, but then also within the film, it's used to distinguish the, the different characters and done in a way that's so like nuanced. I went back and listened to it today, actually, because I wanted to like refresh on that. And it's so cool to hear it three different ways and but instantly identify it with each of those three characters and who they are in the film. That's cool. And I wonder if I wonder if viewers are actually subconsciously picking up on that and maybe don't know it. I think, I think it's the repetition of it has to get to you on a certain level. And then, and then when it's pointed out, you're like, well, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Why that I keep, I want to hear that music. I always think of this character. It's pretty cool. That's actually. right. I, I think it does. I think that's absolutely what it does. I want 100% it does, you know, and there's even been some things over the years where, um, you know, uh, different tones and frequencies have been used to psychologically affect you know, viewers of the movie, especially when they're in the theater. I'm thinking of mm -hmm. that that film, uh, Irreversible, um, that French film. Um, it has some very disturbing scenes in it, but one of the things they did is they had this low level, like really low, below 20 hertz, I think, frequency that would rumble in the background where you couldn't hear it with your ears. Um, but there were a lot of people sitting in the film that started to feel panic and stress and terror because of it and because it was disturbing their their insides and actually um, made this the action on screen even more uncomfortable. And there's been a lot of different experiments with that over the time. I think they did that with Paranormal Activity, too, where it had like this 
low level frequency that caused panic in people. Um, so a lot of the way that the music, my point is, you know, a lot of the way that the music works and why it works in these films is it's like, it has a psychological effect too. Like if you want to, mm -hmm. you want to have, you know, something mysterious, it's going to be in a minor key. And if you want something to feel light and happy, it's probably going to be in a major key. And then everything kind of like dances in between that, depending on what's in the, what's happening on screen. Speaking of Hitchcock, the psycho music is... It 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 sound it sounds like what knives would sound like coming down. It's 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 jarring. It's piercing, and that's that was one of the the early movies that I remember watching. And the music really like the older movies when I was like, wow, you can't forget that. Yeah, it, it, it's it's so <laughs> right, it's so disturbing. It is. It's proof that old movies can still scare you and still move you. I think people make a mistake when they don't watch old movies because. Uh, there's some really good old movies and especially the scoring back then was, was different now. I mean, different than it is now. Like every movie had a big score back then. Seems like. Yeah. I'm curious uh, too, Dave, like, so, so we've been talking a lot about the classic Hollywood composers. Is there any um, newer composers working right now, any fresh talent that, that you're listening to that you're loving what they're doing? Well, this isn't new as in like within the last couple of years or not. And this composer isn't really new either, but it was a score that I was made aware of because I only just recently saw the movie for the first time, maybe like within the last, last six months. Okay. But, um, and this, this is more because, and it's funny, it's going to sound like the only thing I ever watch is Westerns, um, <laughs> but there's been a lot of research being done for the thing that we're doing next month. That makes sense. But um, so I saw the, for the first time about, I guess, six months ago, I saw the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Great and film. Um, first of all, the film, the film is, is brilliant. Um, but Nick Cave. Oh, I love Nick Cave. I absolutely right? love. Oh my God. The, the score that he did for the road was creepy as hell, dude. Yeah. And so sad. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And that's the thing. It's like, it, it's, I think it speaks also to the right composer for the right, the right film, you know, and that movie, Jesse James, um, it was, after I saw the movie, I was just so impressed with the film itself, but then like I couldn't get the score out of my head. And so I went and I just listened to the score straight through like twice. That's cool. And um, it's tragic. It's haunting. It's, uh, it's like it, you feel this constant sense of dread, like, but not in the horror sense, almost like in the, um, like in this uh, tragic longing almost sense. Uh, and it's so... Uh, it's so desperately beautiful the way it's done. And I think that it's really interesting. I think another thing uh, to consider uh, Trent Reznor. Um, oh, and, absolutely. Uh, uh, and what's his, uh, Atticus? Um, Atticus Ross. Ross, thank you. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, um, their score for The Social Network uh, was uh, brilliant. I mean, uh, you want to talk about, again, not necessarily new composers, but I think people that you don't necessarily think of for film scores, Nick Cave and then uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, uh, listening to their takes on those particular genres, mm -hmm. um, you know, one being a Western, but a more modern take on a Western, because obviously the Nick Cave score is completely removed from anything that uh, Ennio Morricone did uh, back in the 60s. Uh, and then, you know, to take... I think the social network, an interesting 
aspect of that score is that it's this mixture because you've got these guys who are so talented with uh, not only being able to arrange and orchestrate uh, orchestral and symphonic music, but then also able to blend in all of these electronic elements and these more modern uh, instrumental elements. And it, it speaks to the thing about scores that are the same about any other aspect of a film, whether it's the script, whether it's the performances, everything is meant to serve the story, right? Right. And so if everything is meant to serve the story, you have to get the right composer for the story in order to make sure that it tells the story in the, in the best way that the story can be told. And I think that when you look at a score like the score for the social network, you realize with the time period that we're in, with the time period that took place in here, you've got a couple of guys who not only were able to bring out that time period, but also a modern sensibility of an understanding of how music communicates things. It's so true. And, you know, you brought up, um, well, I really like that you brought up uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross because, you know, one of the things that Trent Reznor has been able to do, you know, whether you like Nine Inch Nails or not, but one of the things he's been able to do um, with his music over the years is to create moods and environments. So it, you know, when you hear him do a score like um, the social network or uh, uh, gone girl um, and a lot of mm -hmm. films that he's done now, it's like, it creates this texture and bed in the back. And I think some of that becomes from, you know, being an artist, being in front of audiences, knowing how to um, weave a live experience for people and you create emotions through the music. It's like a natural progression for some of these guys to transition over to film. You know, I'm thinking of guys like Hans Zimmer and Danny Elfman, both of them um, worked uh, in, in bands and in music, uh, in the music industry first before converting over to the film uh, industry. You know, Hans Zimmer was the original. He played with the Buggles, you know, video killed the radio star. He was in uh, and, and did some work with that band for a while. And uh, Danny Elfman was in Oingo Boingo, wasn't he? That's right. He was he was uh, and he still is, you know, doing stuff with them. You know, he'll, he'll actually he just released um, new music for the first time in a long time. But I think it's so interesting when you kind of see these composers that kind of transition over, you know, especially Nick Cave, knowing how to just create tension <laughs> with the music. And it really translates really well uh, over to some of these newer films the way they're coming out now. Well, and I know Nick Cave is a huge movie buff. I I, I read something that he watches two movies a day, and he just, he's like he's like a he's like a student of film. And and I I don't know specifics. And I don't want to get into him here, but he's had some dark things happen in his personal life in the last few years. Um, and that I think he draws on that darkness, and maybe it's therapeutic for him to to give give music an outlet to some of those dark things that have happened to him. Yeah, he's been through some dark times with his son, right? Yeah, pretty. Yeah, crazy. that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Sam, you want to you want to end the show on on talking about how we score our own lives? Yeah, Jay Mac. You know, Dave, you you mentioned this earlier when we were chatting earlier about how um, we score our own lives. Um, I think that mm -hmm. we we could do an entire episode on that. Sure. But I kind of wanted. I was curious if you'd bring that up, kind of what your thought was on that, and and. Uh, you know, if you have any examples of, of how that has happened in your life. Yeah, man. I mean, music is a, I think that's the thing. And, and J Mac brought it up earlier. It's like you, these things get into your subconscious. And then when you recall them, uh, suddenly you're right back wherever the thing happened the first time um, to start, to bring it back to film scores, for instance, um, the film, the first film score that I ever heard detached from the film. So not while I was watching it, 
I was working for uh, this little shop in the neighborhood where I grew up. It was my first job. Uh, and the boss of the place would have me take, take these empty CO2 tanks downtown to get them refilled and bring them back so the welders could do their thing. And so one day I was taking his truck to take some tanks downtown, which was a terrible idea, by the way, because I have one, no sense of direction. And two, I had not, I had not at that point in my life spent any time in the city of St. Louis. So, Oh, bad idea. Um, yeah, right. Terrible. Uh, and not to mention, you know, places like uh, yards where they uh, refill CO2 tanks are always farther to the east than anywhere else. So uh, and you guys will know what I mean by that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. East St. Louis. Yeah, I know. I get it. Right. So uh, anyway, but so I remember he had this CD in his truck and I was driving it there. And when I had turned the truck on, the CD had been playing, obviously, prior to uh, to the truck being turned off. So it kicked back on when I turned the truck on. And it was the weirdest thing because I started hearing this music and I was like, this is a symphony or an orchestra. I was like, but this isn't classical music. What is this? And I was like, I, and the, the weird thing was, it was like, I was remembering something I'd heard before, but didn't realize it because I was already familiar with film scores from movies. But so finally I look over and on the seat next to me, there's the CD case and it's got Daniel Day-Lewis on there. And um, it says Last of the Mohicans on it. Uh, and oh, wow. so I'm listening to the film score, never at that point, never having had seen the movie. And I was swept up into this, this, my imagination just went wild at that point. And so like, I remember that vividly. I love that memory because it was the, it was the first time I considered score film score outside of the viewing experience. Um, and then uh, it was funny, I was, while I was kind of thinking about doing this episode with you guys the other day, I was thinking about this very topic. And I remember I took a trip back uh, like through the mid 90s. Uh, and I was like, what were the songs that were playing on the alternative rock radio station while I was working at this little shop I just told you guys about? And so like I was revisiting uh, Semisonic and Nirvana and Fastball and um, all of these these like pseudo well not nirvana but all the other closing time smells grunge. like teen spirit the way there you go <laughs> that's probably what you... <laughs> nice nice dude look at you you remember that's all right of yeah yeah guys. yeah um but the crazy thing was like that was it, i was instantly back working in that big like smelly hot shop and but i remember it as a time when i was discovering because as you guys both know growing up uh listening primarily to christian music like for me at that point uh, so I'm listening on like at other times I'm listening to audio adrenaline and DC talk and the newsboys. And then <laughs> while I'm at, while I'm at work, I'm listening to silver chair and fastball and, and semi-sonic and Nirvana. And so it was really interesting because all of a sudden these musical styles in my brain started blending and it's like this entire, it's like my childhood, you know, that's cool. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, those are some, those are some memories I have. And when you hear one of those songs, you're you're taken back to that time period, right? Like it's it's why you know couples have um, their song. You know, you you hear a song and mm -hmm. it takes you back to some moment. Like that really is the power of music. Um, and it, it is a really interesting thought to to think about how like you know um, a song can connect you to a, a point in time, and you it's almost like a form of time travel. You know, like you yeah, you sit is, there yeah. and you can kind of go back to that point. You know what I'm saying? Sam, what's what's a song for you, or or an album or something? What's what's something that instantly transports you back to a different time? Well, there's a lot of songs that do that, but the first one that popped into my mind 
I'm probably like five years old and my family is going to a pizza hut. Now I'm talking about pizza hut in the weird shaped, you know, building with the awnings that go out diagonally yeah. and you go in and you can still dine in and they bring the pizza out on a pan and you know what That's I'm so saying? Awesome. Like you sit there at the table. Most people forget that pizza hut used to be that way. Yep. And every pizza hut had a jukebox. And I remember going yep, over to the jukebox and someone, um, I was looking at all the different music that was there that you could choose from. And someone was playing this song and it takes me back to that moment at pizza hut. And it was Mike and mechanics, the living years. Do you remember that song? It's like, say it loud, say it clear. You know that song? Yep. Mm -hmm. But anytime I hear that song now, um, I'm instantly taken back to being a kid, sitting there, um, probably like, you know, a summer afternoon, uh, eating some Pizza Hut with the family. It's just a real nice memory. What about you, J-Mac? It's funny that you mentioned Pizza Hut because I was going to go with the Eagles because I heard that working at the job yeah. I worked at. But, but I just I just pulled a Pizza Hut reference. I remember it was a Pizza Hut on the Rock Road. I don't even, even know if it's still there. And somebody put in Bad Medicine. All right. And I remember, I instantly go back, like David was saying, I grew up on Christian rock. I, I was not allowed to listen to anything else. And I remember thinking it sounded so evil. <laughs> <laughs> that and Smoking in the Boys Room, those two songs I heard at that, somebody was playing like the like the Motley Crue Bon Jovi or whatever mix. And it it really stuck in my head. So to this day, when I hear Bad Medicine and Smoking in the Boys Room, I think of that Pizza Hut. That's cool. Talk about a random thought popping out of my head. I guess my brain still works for something. But see, that's a, <laughs> that's the point. You're like you know, you hear a song and it instantly transports you back to a, a place uh, and a time. And it, you know, I, I think that that is exactly why music works in films in general is because it connects us. It's kind of like a glue that happens in the background. Some of the some of my favorite film scores you almost don't even realize that the music is even playing in the background because it's so effective mm -hmm. in yep. creating the mood that's supposed to happen in that scene. And, you know, a lot of the composers that we mentioned on this episode are, were like, they are just masters at doing that very thing. I've got one more for you. This, this is a, this is, this is a kitty one. Whenever I hear the Harry Potter music that do, 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 I think of Christmas time. Cause I always watch those <laughs> movies around Christmas time and I instantly want like some hot chocolate and want to sit by the fire. It's, it's the craziest thing. So I think we got a show here, Sam. I mean, do you want to wrap it up in any closing thoughts? Was there anything else you wanted to share, Dave? I'll, I'll share. I'll share one more because uh, since since J Mac there was talking about a, another song that brought him back. This is like really weird for me. But um, so I was there was a, a family that lived behind uh, my family, and uh, their son was about probably five years younger than me. But one time, just because uh, his mom and dad wanted to go out for an evening, and they knew uh, my family, they were like because I didn't babysit. I was like, it was an unusual thing, but they were like, look, do you mind just babysitting uh, him until we get back? We won't be super late. And I was like, okay, sure, fine, whatever. I was downstairs after the kid had gone to bed. I was downstairs in the basement. I'm watching TV or whatever. And on the, on the table next to the sofa, there's this cassette tape 
and these three guys on the front and it's in black. The, I remember the, the, the cassette uh, insert is in black and white and they were the weirdest looking dudes. And this is way before even like I started to listen to any, like make my own choices about like Christian rock. Uh-huh. But I was like, I don't know what this is. So anyway, I, I grabbed the tape and I, they had a tape player sitting there and I put it in and uh, fine young cannibals, long blonde hair, like oh starts blasting. <laughs> 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 and, and the, and the crazy thing was, I was like, at first I was like, is this a dude or a chick? I was like, I don't know if this, like, so I'm listening and like, it's funny cause I'm sort of listening and then like feeling like maybe I shouldn't be listening to it. And then at the same time going, I don't know why, but I really like this. Oh yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, right. And then, so anyway, so I like, I, I must've listened to the song three or four times. Well, like three weeks later, I'm in the car with my dad and my sister. My mom has gone into the store to grab something. And so we're just sitting, my dad's flipping through, my dad's flipping through radio channels. And that song comes on one of the channels that he's on. And I was like, that's fine. Young cannibals. And my dad looks at me like with the craziest look. And he's like, <laughs> the what? And I was like the band, you know, fine young cannibals. I assumed he knew who they were. And obviously he did not. That's great. And, which is funny. Cause my, my dad had been a professional musician and was like, he played doors and Eagles and all kinds of stuff but, that's right um anyway and so i i got a bit of a talking to after that <laughs> oh i bet you did but, i bet you did but it, but it took me right back to that moment sitting in the back seat of my dad's car going in this big white chevrolet caprice and uh and going that's fine young cannibals that's pretty good dude <laughs> well kudos on the white caprice i've got an 81 lincoln continental i love those big old cars Sweet, dude. Yep, my dad's was a 79 Chevrolet Caprice, white and as large as a boat. Riding dirty. Sam's actually been ride, has taken a ride in my Lincoln. Dude, it's it's like, it is it is a boat. It's like, why did they make cars this big? It's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, it is majestic, J-Mac. It is. See, there you go. Yes, majestic. it's like taking a cruise ship down the road. It's, it's, a, it's amazing. Make sure you have plenty of stopping distance because those things do not stop all that fast. There's all that weight. Yeah, yeah. It's been really great having you on the show, David. Thank you so much, man. Appreciate it, guys. You guys are awesome. For another fantastic episode of Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, my name is Jay Mack. And I'm Sam Wade. And I'm David M. Treadway. Saying until next episode, stay stay cosmic. cosmic. Stay cosmic, man. Nice! (laughs) 